0: Salam and welcome to the Renovatio podcast. I'm Esme Partridge, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to the scholar and philosopher Dr. Muhammad Yu Farouk. Dr. Farouk specializes in Islam, Sufism, literature, theories of subjectivity, and also areas within Western philosophy, such as critical theory. He teaches at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio and recently published his book, Sculpting the Self, Islam, Selfhood and Human Flourishing, which examines pre-modern and modern theories of the self and what it means to be human. Today, I'm going to be talking with him about this book, which has been so far incredibly well-received and, in my opinion, a really quite groundbreaking, cross-disciplinary work. So hello, Mohammed.
1: Hello Esme, assalamu Alaikum and thank you so much for that kind introduction and thanks for having me here at Pranabashio.
0: No worries at all. I'm really looking forward to speaking about it with you. As I say, I personally really enjoyed how cross-disciplinary this work is, and I'm hoping that we can draw out some of the comparisons and other uh, ideas that you touch on here. So I think let's go with the title. Let's start from there. So the the central theme, and indeed the title of your book, is this concept of sculpting the self, which is very embedded within the Islamic tradition. For example, you have the concept of Tazki which means purification, and is taken in Sufism to mean the, the art of perfecting oneself. The question that I think is a really interesting one to begin with is, we know this is there in the traditional literature, there's lots of scholarship on the idea in traditional sources, but how strong do you think that this idea of sculpting the self is among Muslims today? And how can it be incorporated into the religious life in the contemporary world?
1: Right, that's a very good question. Uh, you, you have currently pointed out, you know, when we think about self-cultivation, um, which is one of the transla- can be one of the translations of the phrase uh, "teskia So it's very much related. If you ponder a little bit more, perhaps you, you could see that this is actually coming from Plotinus, and you know, I think it's in the fifth or fifth Aeneid where he has this very famous passage about sculpting the self. So my inspiration originally is coming from Plotinus, but then we all know Plotinus is very much like one of the Islamic philosophers or someone who is extremely well received in the Islamic tradition. So it's part of the Islamic tradition in a broader sense. So to answer the question more specifically, I would say um, Muslims generally, when they think about self-cultivation or their self-food, in general, think about concepts like fitra, which means uh, primordial kind of original perfected nature in which God has created us and we had uh, kind of perfect knowledge of him. People think of that term and people think about it and in terms of some kind of ideal that they have to kind of, you know, they should aspire to, you know, reach. There are definitely people who are religious, you might say, and who do things, just because it's, you know, they're told to do these things, you know, for example, uh, do's and don'ts and so forth. And part of those teachings involve, you know, moral psychology. But I would say there are people who are more reflective in nature. And they do think about a lot of these admonitions in the Quran that talk about, for example, do do you not think about yourself? Do you not think about nature, the world around you? You know, there are all of these constant, you know, admonitions and so forth. So for them, uh, it's the question of, you know, their own identity, like who we are, where have we come from and where are we going? So, and there are those people who kind of think about those questions. So as you begin to think about those questions, then perhaps at some point you realize what we are in our current state is not not the kind of best or the ideal state that, you know, we'd hope to be in. In terms of more organized discussion, I would say you know when we're talking about these things, self-food, it's both kind of you know received or given, and also something that has to be achieved. So no one is kind of born a, a, a sage or a sane or a kind of you know perfected soul and so forth, right? People always ponder about their limitations, faults, and this and that, especially negative emotions, anger, for example, that's something we always struggle with. A lot of other issues. But people who are more reflective, I would say they do think about it. But, you know, there's no way I, I to kind of measure these things. But there can be socialist studies. But I would say that in general, it depends. I, I, I assume there's a spectrum when it comes to kind of global Islam, speaking Islam kind of globally. I would not expect everyone to pay deep attention to these ideas of self-cultivation, paying attention to themselves and kind of understand that, you know, there are all these um imperfections that we're born with and and they can actually be um cured and that's very much related to our um, both psychological and spiritual well-being happiness flourishing not just you know life in, in in paradise or in a life after death but also beginning you know with our life here and uh, some of these things are kind of also you can see in the Quran the Quran talks about peace for example Sakina, one of the verses in the Qur'an talks about how how uh, it, it talks about God sending uh, uh, peace, deep tranquility, sakinah, uh, into the hearts of the believers. So yeah, yeah. And, and then there are, all, uh, we can talk about it more, but there are a lot of verses actually, people I don't know pay attention or not. It's actually asking ourselves to pay, to turn our gaze inward, to think about ourselves, to co- contemplate the self. I, I think there is definitely uh, an awareness about this among uh, some Muslims, but I would say others are more or less—you know—they're following the religion, but by doing so, they are in the process of self-cultivation, purification, to some extent. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much. So. In the book, you entertain the theory that notions of the self and selfhood as we know them today are products of modernity. They belong to the enlightenment paradigm of individual agency and autonomy and how those theories were developed sort of following Descartes, especially Kant as well, very influential, particularly in that concept of autonomy. And you contrast this paradigm which has come to dominate modernity, not just in the West, but increasingly everywhere, you contrast that with the pre-modern condition and the pre-modern understanding of what it meant to be a human uh, or to be a subject. But that's perhaps uh, a historical language, because as as we say, I mean, subjectivity is is a very modern concept. So in, in that contrast, there's the idea that pre-modernity was a time when, as subjects, human beings were somewhat more passive. Perhaps that has negative connotations nowadays, but they were more perhaps accepting of their predetermined roles, not just predetermined by whatever society they were in, but by the divine. There was an understanding of predestination, which was the philosophy of the societies that they were living in. Do you think that you could, perhaps since it's so key to your book, this chasm between the modern and the pre-modern understanding of the self. Do you think that maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on it and perhaps what was the real catalyst to that shift to understandings of modern subjectivity? What are your, What's your kind of summary of that?
1: Right. So you touched on a couple of different points. So, so let me begin by saying in the book itself, as you have noticed in the very first chapter, there's a long section called, Is the Self a Modern Invention? Mm-hmm. So there's this very widespread idea that somehow when you're talking about these terms like self-food, subjectivity, you know, these are already modern sounding terms. And then, you know, when you kind of explore a bit more, there are in fact philosophers like, you know, famous ones like Charles Taylor, who actually do claim that as you said, you know, self-food, subjectivity, you know, these are kind of modern notions. It's one of the things that distinguishes the modern age from the, Pre-modern, I don't like to use that term because it already has pejority, uh, non-modern, let's say, non-modern. In fact, that divide itself is something problematic. But anyway, for the sake of conversation, you don't want to make things too complicated. So, yeah, so modern self is something endowed with agency, self-determination. And, you know, more than that, self-creation, it's the kind of infinite ability to uh, kind of express yourself. It's studying with romantics. And and the idea of kind of self determination and reflexivity itself sort of goes back to Descartes. So, Charles Taylor makes all these claims. So, I kind of refute that in the book, but I actually have a forthcoming article. It's entitled, uh, it's, it specifically deals with Charles Taylor and his claim that in the self is a kind of modern invention. So, this is a very Eurocentric and very much a false reading of uh, that's maybe uh, not the right term, but. Uh, that's a very wrong way to conceptualize things. A, it's not true that, you know, these terms are kind of, more, you know, like, you know, we only have these terms in English and when it comes to Islam, you know, you you don't see much about, you know, kind of stuff. That's not true actually, as I've kind of shown in the book, there are lots of different terms that actually connote in, in various ways consciousness, self food and subjectivity so that's a very com- technical debate so i don't want to get, get into that but then you know there are all these attendant claims to the idea that some, because the self food is a modern invention associated with all of this determination and people Im- individualism another idea modern idea and and pre uh, and people in previous times they were kind of passive and and so if you have that picture obviously the next step would be the pre- you know the so-called pre-modern and non-modern people are people who is still inhabit that kind of worldview, they have to imitate the modern West mm-hmm. and and somehow achieve their selfhood by kind of, quote, unquote. So this is a kind of colonial, you know, almost colonialist or neo-colonialist uh, agenda, you might say. So, you know, I mean, the book itself kind of clearly deconstructs it, but there's a kind of easy way to do it, starting with the Quran itself, I mean, I, I, my book, actually, it, it's not limited to the Islamic tradition. It says, you have noticed, it, it draws on Western traditions, and Plato, is still want, want the, you know, some of the most frequently cited names, and then Indian tradition, and, of course, the vast swath of uh, modern traditions, studying Descartes, Kant, Hegel, and Nietzsche, and other, Heidegger, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But, you know, if, if I want to give a simple example, in the Quran, there's this verse that says, Awalam <inaudible> fi uh, so do they not, not think about themselves or have they not pondered upon themselves, their soul, or within them, you know, the, all of these translations are possible. And it's a very uh, provocative we're asking you. And and there are other verses talking about how we shall show them our signs. Uh, feel uh, on the horizons and, and very famous verse in and in, in them, themselves. So um, and, and nafs is the term for self. It's one of the most frequently, uh, I mean, one of the words that you can find in the Quran used frequently. Associated with lots of lots of self terms hmm. like nafsul nafs nafsul mutmaina, the tranquil self, the evil inciting says. And then you go to how, you know, the Islamic tradition itself, the philosophical, mystical, literary traditions. There are all these terms talking about inner life of the self and, and what is the self itself? How can we have self-knowledge? And how is this related to human, the question of happiness and inner peace and all that. So, you know, it's just a question of kind of turning a blind eye so to other traditions. So it's kind of unfortunate that we tend to think that, in fact, many people, even Muslims, Tend to believe that way. That pre-modern people, they were, as you said, you know, they're kind of passive. They did not have the idea of self reflexivity. And it stretches back to even Plato. People claim that oh, it's not just God determining your destiny. Even Plato, when he was talking about the self or soul in Greek, you know, it's not just psuche; it's also autos. There's another word for self. Uh, but even for Plato, things are kind of preordained, et cetera, et cetera, whereas only in modern times you have this idea of self-creation, you are in control of yourself, you can think about your, you know, creating your own self, you, you know, th- using whatever values you, you think uh, are uh, good for you, et cetera, et cetera, and pre-modern people didn't, simply did not have those ideas or freedom. So this is not true at all.
0: Thank you for elaborating on that. And it was something that had occurred to me as well when I was reading this book. One is has to be so careful not to fall into these orientalist tropes. And I think when it comes to the idea of the self, they are still very present. I mean, most infamously, you have the idea of the Oriental despot, uh, who, who is tyrannical god who dominates You know, the societies of the East as very sort of orientalist image and inherent in that idea of an oriental despot is a civilization which is submissive and that is not autonomous and not free, which is another very Western enlightenment concept, or at least is so hard to talk about without being so uh, saturated with those connotations. So I guess a, a smaller question is how do you mitigate the persisting influence of Orientalist ideas on comparisons between Western, you know, that is so-called modern, as you say, perhaps non modernism more appropriate. Have you run into any times where you perhaps have to sort of question the literature and how biased it is and, and how, how do you mitigate that?
1: Right. So that's only one aspect of the uh, of the book, you know, it, it addresses, as you said, you know, the central question is what it means to be human in, the, in a post-Enlightenment uh, secular uh, world, secular globalized world. That, that's the main theme. So it's not so much about just correcting a historic, you know, kind of Orientalistic view about the ideas of the self in Islam, in Islamic tradition. It does that, you know, in the very first chapter. But then the project is a more constructive one, so I was writing as a humble Islamic constructivist thinker, living in the West as a Western Muslim. So not just kind of engaging in my own tradition and not just thinking about Muslim, but also thinking about the society in which we live, which includes all of this. It's a pluralistic in the sense that it has you know, all sorts of people who are, do not believe in God or transcendence at all, people who believe, but they believe in all sorts of different ways about God. So it, it was an attempt to, it was, you might say, a very amb- ambitious attempt to, kind of talk to a lot of different audiences uh, in fact a global audience so you you have definitely noticed like there were points where i was very much in agreement with a lot of western thinkers and actually when we say the west we have to sometimes distinguish between the modern west and and the kind of non modern and ancient west because uh, i was in converse very much kant and nietzsche probably two most famous names cited uh, in the book and these are also some of the most uh, sophisticated and and influential kind of Western figures. There are a lot of places where you could see I was in agreement with what they're saying about self as they were in uh, you know, addressing various questions, etc., cetera, et cetera, But there are also places where I kind of differed. So it is a kind of dialogue. And I brought in a lot of different people from a lot of, in, in, in fact, even people like Augustine, even though I'm not an Augustinian or neither am I a Thomist, but it was, a, I, I just felt like given our own situation, I kind of laid out this methodology of what I call epistemic pluralism, which, in simple terms, fundamental questions of uh, truth, being knowledge, they're addressed by uh, they're addressed by people in all major cultures. Because um, we live in a society where, in, in a context where people often think that you know, even talking about these issues is kind of inherently something modern, and by modern they mean in you know, a liberal, modern, liberal. You know the the worldview that's kind of the ground, the kind of based on which you, 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 you that's basically your anchor, and and then basically everything else that's basically the center, and everything else is kind of peripheral. So there was an attempt to deconstruct that. There was an attempt to kind of level down the and, and then make and make clear to uh, different audiences that these questions are important and they're addressed by the Islamic thinkers, for example. And they can still answer a lot of our struggles with ourselves, for example. You know, a lot of people have issues with psychological issues, you know, issues of, that, you know, people often think about their identity, et cetera, et cetera. So it was an attempt to kind of engage a lot of different thinkers, but at the same time, not just reproduce historical materials, but to kind of philosophically engage these sources in Arabic, Persian, Urdu, or, uh, or Greek and French and German and you know a few languages that uh, I was able to learn and kind of talk to different audiences. So it, it, the Orientalism was not the kind of focus, but in a way, it does away with Orientalism because it, toward the end, I actually, in fact, even engaged with Hobbes and other and more, some of the modern liberal thinkers, even like you know John Rawls, for example. So I, my point was to show that you know we, it's a kind of pluralistic world, and we have to acknowledge that. It's not like when we'll talk about subjectivity, consciousness, it will always be kind of Western thinkers because there is that Eurocentric you know, paradigm that's ubiquitous and, and that people take for granted. Mm-hmm. And even if you're familiar with some names in Arabic or Persian, uh, they're kind of relegated to, you know, like a second rate, you know, philosophy or something.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. And I have to say this aspiration you have towards epistemic pluralism is reflected very strongly in the book itself, where, as you say, you are drawing on a number of different thinkers and creatively putting them together and being constructive. Um, Now, one of these thinkers that you draw on from outside of the Islamic tradition who's plays quite an important part in the book, especially looking at postmodern theories of the self, is Foucault. Now, I think Foucault is a really interesting thinker from a traditional, religious, broadly conceived perspective. And I think I got the impression that this is something you recognised, because on the one hand, we are... I would say, fundamentally at odds with his overall worldview, particularly his assertion that truth is a thing of this world, his materialism. I mean, all of these aspects of Foucault are not something which we tend to find very much sympathy in as theists, as people who believe that truth isn't a thing of this world. But on the other hand, there is actually something to be said for these postmodern thinkers because a bit like you, a bit like me as well, they are looking to deconstruct Western Enlightenment narratives, particularly concerning subjectivity. And they're actually quite compelling in some ways from that perspective. So something which Foucault talks about when he's critiquing these Enlightenment theories of selfhood is something that he describes as empirico-transcendence, which is the projection of the human senses and the human cognition, so Descartes and Kant respectively, onto the wider universe it's basically anthropocentrism it's placing the world in the middle of everything and making judgments about wider reality based on the self and the senses human rationality and foucault is very critical of that and it's actually a little bit uncomfortable i think if you are sucked into the current sort of culture war in a way which is instantly critical of postmodernism and oh you know they want to do away with truth and all of this and and yes that is an issue but there is actually some resonance there with what we're talking about, especially when it comes to this empirico-transcendence. So I guess I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's important to your book and also ask you, to what extent would you agree with me there, perhaps, that Muslims and maybe also followers of other religions can actually sympathise with the postmodernists when it comes to the self? You know, Could you elaborate on postmodern contributions to conversations about modern selfhood and where there are connections between traditional perspectives on selfhood or at least traditional criticisms of modern selfhood.
1: Yes, thanks very much uh, for bringing that up. And and there's a lot that can be said about this, but let's kind of begin step by step. So yeah, okay. you're right. Uh, there can be some overlap. So I'll begin with this one, for example. Uh, so as you know, in postmodernism, we try to do away with any notion of essentialism, the idea that there's a kind of fixed self or fixed human nature and defined by either rationality or defined by some other, you know, whatever definition. That's very problematic, right? Sometimes it can be coercive and so forth. But, <coughs> excuse me. So when it comes to uh, some of the Islamic definitions of the self, actually, from one perspective, selfhood is not kind of definable, I- even in the Islamic tradition because at the highest level, if we have something like Sufi metaphysics in, in in view, then you'd say that because we are talking about this ultimate state of perfection, which is represented by this doctrine of perfect human being, and this is in a sense, the idea that we are made in, to put it in simple terms, we are made in the image of God. Now the image, and this is from a hadith uh, in a, in a, found in the Bukhari, incidentally, a version of this also in the Bible, like God has created, uh, God. Adam upon his surah or form. Now the form of the absolute or God or ultimate reality is ultimately formless or imageless because this is about the infinite, absolute and infinite. So there is no fixed definition. And if you notice some of the writings of some of these great thinkers, like Ibn Arabi, the highest station is Maqam, the station of no station. It's simple bewilderment. And and there's a famous story. Perhaps it's worth, I I mean, some people might like it. It's worth kind of saying it here. So uh, because Rumi is one of those famous names uh, that everyone is familiar with. So it was kind of said that when he first met uh, Shams, who was kind of his you know, a spiritual teacher or someone with whom he had a very deep, intimate relationship. So when first, and, but Shams was a kind of very exotic character, right? Kind of wild character. So when they first met, uh, Shams actually wanted to test Rumi's knowledge, esoteric knowledge. And then he asked, uh, so what is the, what do you think uh, about the Compare respective stage, sp- spiritual stations of Prophet Muhammad and, and the famous uh, Sufi saint Bayezid. Who is greater, Prophet Muhammad or, or greater in rank or, or Bayezid? Because Bayezid said, Glory be to me, Subhani, and all of those kind of what the Suf- Sufis call ecstatic, you know, shathiyat, uh, you know, ecstatic sayings that have their own place, but that are kind of abnormal from uh, or kind of unacceptable from a just a Sharia point of view. Anyway. So that's what, you know, Barazid said. Whereas the prophet said, if I just, I don't want to read, uh, I don't want to speak, uh, mention too many Arabic sayings, but the uh, English of that saying was um, the prophet in, said in relation to God that uh, he was not able to kind of know him as he deserves to be known. So which shows what? There's one, on the one hand, you have a saying, you have a Sufi saying who is saying, uh, who is directly claiming that God is somehow within, himself, like glory be to me and subhania, all of those things. And, and here is, you have a prophet of God saying, I, I was not able to know you, uh, addressing God in the end. So, uh, so who is greater? And then Rumi said, and I mean, from a Muslim perspective, you would <laughs> you, never say that Bayezid is kind of greater, but logically it seems like, you know, you should have said Bayazid. But anyway, Rumi said prophet, but why? Because if you look at Bayazid's saying, because his container was kind of limited, God has manifested himself once, and, and he's just seeing all of this. But because when it comes to the prophet, his, con- the container of his heart was so vast that it was never satisfied. So each time God would manifest um, his, himself in, in the prophet's consciousness, uh, the prophet would know that this is the infinite. You can never completely contain the infinite. You know, it's so the prophet's knowledge is invariably it has to be. You know, it's greater, and it's it's shown by that. in you know, a particular saying. So the self at the end is kind of indefinable. It, it does not have a kind of fixed essence. The philosophers sometimes talk about, oh, the self. The definition is rational animal, uh, or in modern times people use all of these definitions of language animal, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. These are all kind of very limited. So postmodernism. Is actually very much in line with Sufi metaphysics, at least on this. Uh, when it comes to doing away with the idea of kind of fixed essence, etc. And then, as you mentioned, when it comes to these critiques of the Enlightenment, you know, project the idea of instrumental reason, you know, rationality, kind of thinking of reason without uh, any. any you know, telos, et cetera, et cetera. Foucault and others are right to criticize that. And Foucault, as you know, has that famous article in response to Kant's fastest uh, of Klagung, what what is it, Enlightenment in German? Foucault kind of responded to that. So there are all of those kind of overlaps, I think we can deeply sympathize with. And, And more than that, when it comes to Foucault's historical analysis of what happened with people like Descartes and so forth, he's so right to kind of see that with Jacob, perhaps for the first time, I mean, these things can be traced back to Patriarch and Renaissance and then Montaigne and others, it's kept, you know, there are kind of secularizing tendent, tendencies in the high Renaissance already. I mean, he himself somehow had this miraculous idea that now in order to have uh, self-knowledge of yourself, you don't need to think about ethics or self-cultivation. That is kind of ubiquitous if you are familiar with Western uh, ancient philosophy, whether it's Augustine, or Plato, even though they are different, like, like they're not kind of Augustine. Obviously, I was not a Platonist, but nonetheless, you can see the relationship between ethics and, and, and self knowledge. But with Descartes, uh, you don't need to think about any of these ethical issues. All you need is a kind of functioning rational mind, and that's enough to kind of come to a self understanding. Cogito ergo sum. I I think therefore I am. And then so we're still in, stuck in that you know in that paradigm. You know when we think about self or consciousness, either it's in neuroscience, cognitive science, various cognitive sciences, um, it's in psychology, we no no longer think about these ethical barriers that might actually prevent having, prevent you from having proper, true self-knowledge. We only think about, you know, rational processes. Now, you know, mostly through the the brain processes, which we think should be enough to have kind of self-knowledge. This is very antithetical to Islamic, and I should Venture to say, also Greek and even Indian ideas of the self, where uh, perception itself, epistemology, ethics—you know—these things are kind of interrelated. So, yeah. But at the same time, you know, when they're talking about self-creation, post se- this same postmodernism, there is a kind of self-creation even within, you know, Islam as well. This is about, you know, use again freedom as well. But this is about, you know, creating a new self in light of um, the divine self, which is. The infinite, but which has all of these different attributes or perfections, beauty, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there is definitely self-creation, but there is a transcendent reference to that. Whereas in postmodernism, you know, not with, with withstanding uh, this idea of self-creation, you don't have, you know, you don't have any reference to you don't transcend the kind of material realm. It's all kind of limited to. So that project ultimately. So if I want to kind of pass a final judgment, I mean in the book, I mentioned this at the very end, after going through all of this back and forth, you know, with Nietzsche, even with Iqbal and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's it sounds wonderful. Ubermensch in a sup, you know, the so you know, in Nietzsche, uh, superhuman. This is all great. Like, so if you are only genius, because most people actually do need others to think about virtues, et cetera. Et cetera but there are given let's say there are those geniuses you know artists et etc cetera, et cetera, who can figure out all the values that they want to have and then kind of change their self depending on you know what they see fit as but then the rub is that uh, the catch is that you know if values can be created so freely just by kind of mental gymnastic or or just through kind of your mental gifts they can also be taken away that free, you know, with, you know, with such rapidity, you know, just as you can feel like, you know, today, everything, you know, you wake up and you see the sunlight and sun is shining everything. And you feel like life is full of meaning, et cetera, et cetera. And it makes sense to kind of live your human life, you know, all this potential. At the next day, the sky, not just outside, but also inside, you might feel like totally gloomy. You might feel totally clueless and you might not feel any motivation at all. So it's a very deep question with the, you know, with all of these kind of suicide rates and nihilism and all of this. These are some of the kind of deep questions that, you know, there are a lot of books being written about it. And that's not to say there is no kind of response to that. There is no kind of materialistic response to that. I mean, there are, you know, books that address this from a, some people going for a kind of polytheism. Or taking sports as a form of transcendence, yeah. but uh, clearly those views have their own issues. But that's not the v- those are not the views I endorse in in the end.
0: Thank you very much for elucidating that. And I think if I can add a comment um, about the postmodern project and its shortcomings. I think the great irony is that while, yes, postmodernism does make some quite compelling critiques of the Enlightenment and seems like an anti-modern stance and hence getting the name postmodern, it actually inherits all of the core doctrines of modernism. It's that materialism, it's anti-realism, which is the sort of philosophical jargon for the rejection of exterior truth in the eternal realm, which is really a reaction against Plato. And this is the great irony. And actually, if you really dissect the postmodern thinkers, they remain so committed to these principles which were solidified. For example, Nietzsche. If you look at Nietzsche's radical subjectivism, it's very Cartesian. He's not really going against the grain in terms of what's already become the dogma, if you will, of the modern age. It's particularly the influence of Kant on these thinkers as well. Um, If you look at Kant's reaction against external truth and it all being in the mind or rather accessible truth being all within the mind that continues straight through Hegel and, and then through Nietzsche and, and into Foucault. But I won't digress. I just think it's a, it's an interesting, um, interesting conversation now going back to uh, what you just were telling me about you touched on the fact that there is some semblance between islamic understandings of the self and neoplatonist ones or traditional platonist ones but also the later platonist thinkers uh, and also advaita vedanta you categorized these three understandings of the self into one particular type of theory which you describe as the maximalist view of the self and this maximalist view of the self is quite an important premise of your book it's clearly the one that that you see as being the the optimal kind of approach to selfhood and do you think that you could perhaps just gloss over or or some, what, what do you mean by the maximalist view of the self? And what's the main advantage of having a more maximalist view of the self, which is endorsed not just in Islam, but also by Neoplatonism? The
1: book, in the end, proposes a new model of the self called the spectrum model. And it's defined by this idea of multidimensionality and criticizes in existing literature in different fields like anthropology, philosophy, and various sciences, by saying when they discuss consciousness self, they do so in a very kind of uh, reductionist way. So although they are kind of uh, partial truths, when, you know, for example, you go to neuroscience and you hear a lot about self and its relationship with the brain. And I, so I don't deny that. Like I call this biophysiological self and I define it. And I say, I give a lot of examples. I say, that's fine. Similarly with Foucault and others, you know, they're talking, in a social constructionism, you know, social processes affecting the, you know, your identity, shaping your identity. But again, you know, when it's kind of in an exclusive manner, then you're running into all sorts of problems, because as I said, so I don't deny that there is what I call sociocultural self, but there's also the phenomenological cognitive, what I call cognitive experiential self. But then it's more than that. You know, it's, these are all descriptive. So I lay out a very complex, you know, theory, as you know, which, for example, distinguishes between descriptive and normative notions of the self. One of the problems when one of the kind of frequent issues we have when we run into various conceptions of the self that seem just so confusing, everyone is defining It's because we're not making all of these distinctions and kind of we're kind of talking past each other, even though it, it may be the same word in English or in in, Fran- in, in French or, or German. So yeah, so when you have multi multidimensional model in place that kind of have these biophysiological, sociocultural selves, and then also ethical, spiritual, I, I feel like you get a kind of more complete picture. Then that, but this is the kind of skeleton so where does this lead us? That's the that's uh, I think more interesting question. The, I provide this typology because I try to deal. I try to be. I think it's my nature. Try to be as exhaustive as possible. So I kind of lay, lay out this typology of all sorts of cells, post from all the way from Buddhist notion to the postmodern to the phenomenological to the neuroscientific, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when it comes to finally my own humble view, it, it's grounded within you know, in Platonic, Islamic, but again, not directly traceable because I'm doing my own humble kind of constructive thinking here. So I would say that in what it comes to Islam, the self would be described by both, both of these following terms, anthropocosmic and, and anthropocentric. And because when we think about the self, it's not just the individual, it's not just the Cartesian ego and so forth, you know, it's not just the human focus. There's also a cosmic dimension, and they're like the two sides of the same uh, coin minted in the uh, image of God. You can kind of put it this way. And this might sound too, a bit, I don't know, too um, complicated, but if I just uh quote some verses from the quran it will immediately make sense to people who are familiar with those i, I think i already quoted that verse that says uh so we shall uh, show them uh, our signs uh, on the horizons as well as within themselves so you know this is very familiar to people in the islamic tradition i mean scientists and, and philosopher there are a lot of treatises with this title called "Science of the Horizon" or "Science of Nature" and ilmun nafs Science of the Self, because they're they're in a you know, traditional microcosm-macrocosm analogy. So you know it, things become extremely problematic, and you can see this from an e- ecological perspective. Why? focusing on the self in terms of only the anthropos is so problematic. We separate ourselves artificially from nature. We think that we are kind of self-enclosed individuals and we have our own mental life, you know, inner life and all of these notions as if we can simply exist, you know, without, you know, the ground underneath, without time, space, language, culture, history, etc., etc. So the Islamic na- notion of the self starting from the Quran is very much both anthropocosmic and anthropocentric. It does address the individual You know, the, so, so many times in the Quran, it's very clear that in its focus is the individual. But then this individual is a part of the greater whole and you can't separate the two. Those are some of the kind of important uh, differences. And once we begin to take uh, note of some of these notions, I, I think that you know, it, it, these things have the great potential to kind of also think about the current ecological crisis where you we know, are the loss. And you simply don't get into that kind of crisis because nature does not, when you see nature as part of you, or actually you see yourself as part of nature, you never think of this idea of dominion, you never think about subjugation, manipulation, control, all of these ideas about nature that became kind of more prominent, you know, in the Renaissance or yeah. Bacon and yeah. others. And then through the Enlightenment, you know, the particular way they were kind of Thinking about reason, and lo and behold, the kind of consequences of there, the price that we're kind of facing. So these are really some of the deep issues, and not to mention the idea of individualism. I don't know if we'll have time to go or not. The Islamic ide- notion of the self co- encompasses both the individual at the same time the cosmos. That's why it's anthropocosmic and anthropocentric. But anthropocentric does not l- mean you know it, it has to be individualistic in the sense of the individualism or individualistic self that is kind of prevalent. Like, you know, you think about your own agency, uh, self-determination, freedom, and, you know, complete control on your destiny and and kind of American dream and all of that. I mean, this is, some of this is great, actually. Some of this is great. But, you know, I mean, COVID-19 is a great example to show that despite all of our confidence on modernity and modern science and so forth, we are, there are a lot of things actually that are actually beyond our control. The same with the same is true about our kind of individual life. A lot of kind of you know kind of unknown variables that we, we cannot simply control. So we, and so it's one thing to kind of say that you know we like this idea of freedom, self-determination, and and that we should have some of these things, but. It's also important to put things into their perspective so i can elaborate on on some of these things uh, more because these are some of the things that people often wonder like you know we live in a culture where it's everyone says individual highly individualistic self-centered and 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 there are freudian cultural critics like christopher lash and other they even call this the narcissistic self and these things are leading you know making things you know they're kind of making things very complicated so yeah i'd love to continue that but depending on yeah your next question or comment
0: well i think we will move on to the last question but before i do i have to say that that distinction that you raise between individualism and individuality and the anthropocentric versus the anthropocosmic, I do think that's a really crucial distinction that you lay out in your book. And um, One of the, the parts of your book which actually really caught my eye was when you're comparing uh, Muhammad Iqbal and William James, and you mention a claim of, uh, of Iqbal who says that the personal pronoun used in the Qur'anic expression rabi, which means my lord, you know, rab is lord, E is my, so my lord meant to suggest that the soul must be taken as something individual and specific with all the variations in the range balance and effectiveness of its unity so what he's drawing on there is this idea which you've already talked about which is that in the quran there is an understanding of individuality but that individuality exists within a framework of unity and so i think it would be safe to say that's the the distinction really it's between you know there being some kind of individuality, but that doesn't become what you might call a sort of ontological individualism when we're, where we're all just severed individuals who exist simply as, as fragmented beings. So this is
1: extremely important because increasingly you can notice this phenomenon of self alienation. In in fact, this has been going on. You know, Tocqueville, one of the f- you know famous you know political critics, who visited uh, America in 19- 1830, about 150 years ago, and talked about individualism even at the time. And then you know other thinkers in the 19th century already was talking about self alienation. And with the rise of AI and increasing you know presence of technology and all of this, you can so clearly see. First, we severed ourselves. Separated ourselves from nature because we we thought somehow we are the subject and and everything else can be you know seen as an object we can manipulate control and now due to technology and now with this metaverse and virtual reality stuff, you can see the kind of increasing self alienation that every every person is somehow I mean not so all but a lot of people are having that and you know, having to kind of cope with themselves like so it's a very problematic idea problematic way of kind of defining your individualism, Mm -hmm. individuality, kind of seeing yourself as, as, you know, separate, as you said, separate from others nature, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas there can be a kind of healthy understanding of of the individual, which is still, you know, still, it's an individual journey. When we're talking about recovering your fitra, you know, you know, perfecting your nature, self-cultivation, self-knowledge. These are the kind of goals, of, you know, I, I think in Islam, the higher goals. You have to think in terms of your individuality, right? Mm-hmm. But then this individuality, individual is not disconnected from the larger whole. They, there is an ontology that kind of encompasses the individual that is being itself as being, Greater than you know the kind of individual entities or individual beings and so forth. So you put yourselves in in, in perspective, and you don't. And it, it should not lead to kind of self-aggrandizement and all of all of those things that kind of kind of blur our vision that you know leads to sort of kind of overestimation and those things. So yeah, so I'm, I would say that individuality definitely Islam is very much also. You know, I mean the Islamic notion, so it's focused on the anthropos, uh, but at the mm-hmm. same time we should not forget about the kind of transcending the individual. So I think the very last sentence in my book is about self-transcendence. It's about transcending, you know, the individual, who are it's, you know, in so far, it's, in, it has all of these limitations, ignorance, and, and who are individual, it will always have, will always have all of these, you know, limitations and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. But then the miracle of consciousness is something that is able to connect us to the greater whole, uh, which is the divine self-conscious or divine consciousness. That's why, you know, um, this is kind of win-win situation. But then, you know, for that to happen, we have to take into consideration all of this, what I call the spiritual, what is known as spiritual exercises and so forth. So the whole idea is to have kind of self-knowledge. In the end, if you ask me, so what is your conclusion about it, what, what, what does it matter? Well, it matters because, according to many philosophers thinkers in the Islamic tradition, the kind of goal of all of these things, I mean, religion in general, is to have knowledge of God. And there's this saying that attributed to the Prophet, He who knows himself knows his Lord. So, self knowledge kind of leads to knowledge of God and everything else. So, uh, so, but this is a complex process, especially in modern times. We have to take into consideration all of these veils, barriers. Yes, along the way, postmodernism actually can be helpful in removing some of these barriers. But as you pointed out, it itself becomes its own barrier. So I'd like to end by, you know, quoting this, at least the English from um, Hafez, one of the most, perhaps my favorite mystical Persian um, uh, Sufi uh, poet. And he has this amazing, I mean, this is found in many different contexts, but he has this amazing verse from his uh, divan, which says, uh, Oh Hafez, you, you are yourself, uh, you are your own veil, oh Hafez. lift the veil in between uh, so that you can, you know, you can see uh, the, the truth. So we have to come back to ourselves in order to kind of lift this veil of the ego, in order to see the light of the truth.
0: Thank you. I think that's a wonderful place to close and leaves me with plenty of things to reflect upon. I'd just like to say thank you again, Mohammed, for taking the time to extrapolate on some of the aspects of your book. And there is so much more that could be discussed. And to those of you who were wondering if there were other areas that we could have talked more about, please do read the book. I I have to say I found it very accessible um, despite containing so much as being very eclectic and going into a lot of depth, but you presented it very well. So congratulations on this excellent book. And thank you to everybody for listening. You can, of course, listen to other podcasts and essays and articles on the Renovatio website, which is renovatio.zetuna.edu, And thank you again for listening. Thank you. Thank you for having me piano mm-hmm. plays